Welcome to On DoD on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jared Serbu. Glad you're with us this week. And for a long time now, one of the most complicated and vexing parts of getting new technologies onto DoD networks has been the process of getting systems through the security authorization process. It's now been five years since the department transitioned from one process, DIACAP, to the one the rest of the federal government is now using, the National Institute of Standards and Technologies Risk Management Framework. On the military side, at least, it was a rocky start. By some estimates, the way DOD was implementing RMF caused a 900% increase in the work that had to be done to get a system accredited and authorized. But a lot of those kinks are now being worked out across the services. On this week's show, we're going to talk about the Army's experience with RMF. The Army is in the process of a multi-year RMF reform effort called Project Sentinel, and officials say they've already made a lot of progress. Our guest to kick off the show this week is Nancy Kreidler. She's the Director of Cybersecurity and Information Assurance in the Army CIO's office. We'll talk quite a bit about exactly what Project Sentinel is and everything the Army's accomplished under Project Sentinel in in just a few minutes. But I want to lay the background just a little bit. By going back to 2015, when the Army first adopted RMF, if, if you could talk us through some of the challenges that first presented when you were transitioning from DIACAP and, and, and why you initially felt that you needed to start looking at this process differently? Yeah, great question. So, you know, everybody remembers 2015 fondly because when the risk management framework uh, was rolled out, it was rolled out with training, but the training really centered around a tool called EMAS, which is where the RMF workflow happens. And so what we ended up happening was we focused on the execution of the process rather than um, the actual um, training of telling people how to do risk assessments, risk mitigation, risk mediation, et cetera. So as a result, the process became more and more compliance-based. How did you meet a control, right, not how risk is managed? And the process was a huge shift from DIACAP. The sheer number of controls that were added to the process, uh, I don't think the Army and I don't think any of the services were really ready for. And then in addition, the roles and responsibilities really changed. So the system owners and the, and the security managers that used to work under the DIACAP process, they would hire third-party uh, assessors and testers to come in and really do their control assessments. With RMF, they were responsible for that. And so there was a training uh, curve that, that we really were not prepared for. And so given this huge shift in, in roles and responsibilities and given the sheer number of controls and the amount of work that was increased, we really just started focusing on getting through the process. And I think that was the complaints that we heard throughout the community. You know, it takes too long. It's too much work. And so because of this, you know, as, as, we, as we focus on just compliance, we're really getting away from the cybersecurity that RMF was supposed to bring to the process. So as we tried to get through the process, and the process allows you to start tailoring implementation of of the risk management framework, I think we're at the point now where we learned enough where it's time. And I think you see this in the other services as well. Uh, The Air Force did the rapid ATO process. We did a similar process for our tactical systems. So the Army was really no different. There was a really steep learning curve, and it did take a while to get a handle on the process before we started tailoring. But right now, uh, we've done a lot of good work up until now, and we're going to continue to do that, and that's what this project is about. 
Yeah, and not not to dwell too much on the ancient past, but y- you know, you mentioned there were so many more security controls under RMF than you had been used to under Diacap. Was part of that just because people had a mentality of every single one of these controls is a check on a checklist that you got to cross off, and we treat them all with equal importance? Yeah, that's exactly what happened. So what happened is there's there's so many controls, and they were not prioritized that every every control becomes equal to the control before it and the control after it. And because of that, you really aren't prioritizing your risk or what you should focus on. And so, again, when you're, when you're overwhelmed, when you go from maybe a, a 200 assessment procedure to a 17 or 18 or 1900 assessments, um, you just try to get through the process. Okay, so let's, let's fast forward quite a bit here. And, and as you roll out Project Sentinel, how do you start to look at RMF differently? So let, let me tell you what we've done uh, before this project because we did, as I said, we did start start tailoring. So the first thing sure. we, we looked at was, was our warfighter needs. Um, and so what we did is we came up with a tactical rapid capability process where you could get an ATO in two to three months. Uh, we brought in a blue team to give a good look at the system and we were able to field. And so this allowed us to uh, fulfill operational need statements from the field uh, very quickly. So this is something akin to the Air Force um, rapid ATO process. Mm-hmm. We then looked at Army Futures Command and all the cross-functional teams, um, and we created a test process where the RMF allows them to get systems on the network quickly so they can test technical solutions quickly and often. And so we actually reduced the RMF workload for, for these systems by 66%. Now, that is huge because, you know, Army Futures Command and the CFTs are, t- are testing our new capabilities. So, so that was a great win for the Army. The last thing we looked at was the tactical architecture overall and saw where we could streamline the RMF process. And here we saw systems that were program-managed systems, um, but there were controls that really addressed what the, what the unit was doing in the field, and it really wasn't um, set up. The RMF framework was not set up for this kind of condition and this kind of architecture. So what we did is we were able to tweak that process. We saved 68%, um, and so now we are able to uh, get our PM-managed systems out to the field quicker as well. So we really focused on the tactical, and now that we've done that, um, we really think we want to tackle the entire program as a whole and the way we uh, execute it. And what what exactly does that mean when you expand this to, as you say, an entire program as a whole? So what, what, the, what the tailoring did is we took specific instances in specific cases and tailored the process to those cases. But I believe at this point, with, with all the learning that we have and everything, all the experience that we have, that the way we're executing RMF as, as a whole, we are still not prioritizing risk and threat. And that's what Project Sentinel gets after. How much can you generalize that prioritization and how much is it system specific, if that question makes sense? In, well, in this case, for, for, for Project Sentinel, we are um, not tailoring to the system. And uh, I will, I'll go into, let me go into what, what Project Sentinel is, and yeah, maybe sure. that'll give you a better framework sure. uh, for your questions. So there's three main uh, phases of this project. The first one is to look at the entire NIST control set and identify controls that are common across the entire Army. And these we're basically going to see policy type controls. And so an example would be, do you have uh, acceptable use addressed in a policy? And so we do have an acceptable use policy. We have a privileged access policy. We have AR25-2. And so we can answer this control once, and then all systems can inherit that answer. 
And so while this may look very small, the fact that you don't have to answer a control for every system in the Army over and over again saves a huge amount of time. And so phase one is we are going to continue to look at this control set and see where we can either use inheritance and answer once for the Army, or we can consolidate. Uh, a good example of consolidation is there will be controls that ask about a specific policy, but they will ask you, have you created the policy and are you executing the policy? But well, we can take those two assessments and just ask about the policy. And so there's a lot of collapsing, I think, that we can do as well. The second part is this is where it really changes. So the first is to kind of um, hone down the control set into what makes sense, eliminate any redundancies, identify common controls. The second step prioritizes the controls against validated threat. And this is the big shift in, the, in this whole project. We're going to look at the Center for Internet Security, which is the old SANS Top uh, 20, our cyber, national ground intelligence, Army G2, and any other validated threat source. And we will continue to identify these threat sources um, as time goes on. And what we're going to do is we're going to map these, map these threats, the current threat, to the controls and prioritize the controls. Once we do that, we're going to identify a threshold, depending on what's going on in the, in the state of cybersecurity. And there will be instances where there are vulnerabilities that are found that cannot be mitigated uh, without a higher level review. And so an example of this would be personally identifiable information that is not encrypted. Are we going to allow that on the network or not? Or an internet-facing website um, that requires authentication. If the authentication isn't up to, to what the requirement is, are we going to let that in the, uh, on the network? And so really what I see, the current RMF process has not prioritized this risk and the threat, which is what we're trying to get after. So that's really the biggest phase of this project is, is, is to make that shift. And so the idea is not to just reduce the controls, but make sure that we're looking at the right controls. And then the last phase of the project, which is really interesting because I actually think this may have a, a greater impact, is we really want to rewrite the NIST control language in something that's easy to read. And this is important because you can have five people in a room looking at a NIST control, and you will have five different interpretations of what it's asking for. Mm -hmm. And so when you can't even agree on what you're assessing, you're not really set up for success. So I think we're going to be able to really influence this process. By doing this simple uh, work, I think people who come on board that are learning the process will have an easier, uh, an easier time of learning the process. Um, and I think it will actually end up having a big impact. So that's the three phases, uh, streamline the controls, prioritize against the validated threat, and rewrite the NIST control language. Nancy Kreidler is the Director of Cybersecurity and Information Assurance in the Army CIO's office. We'll come back and talk more about Project Sentinel, the Army's new effort to streamline its cyber authorization processes after a quick break. This is On DoD on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu. Back on Federal News Network, this is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. Talking this week about improvements the Army is making and has been making to its approach to the risk management framework. 
Lots of changes in the coming years under the banner of an effort officials are calling Project Sentinel. My guest for this part of the show is Nancy Kreidler, the Director of Cybersecurity and Information Assurance in the Army CIO's office. And before the break, she told us the rollout is happening in three phases, winding up with a rewrite of the language NIST uses for the controls in the risk management framework. Let me kind of work backwards and ask you kind of three, two, one in those in those phases. As, as you do that rewrite, is it really for primarily internal Army use, or are you working collaboratively, collaboratively with NIST to come up with something that you think would be useful for the broader federal and cybersecurity community? We're doing it for the Army for the different levels of reviewers and, and uh, people that have to work on this. Um, there, because of the interpretation, I mean, there is has to be some conversation about what we're really looking for. Um, and if there's if there's a an issue with interpreting what it's really looking for, we are going to have to go back to NISC and get clarification. But a lot of these are just writing it in a way where people understand what they're looking for. It's very um, it's very educational language, if that's what I could, if that's what you want to call it. Mm -hmm. And and that, but do you do you imagine NIST doing some rewriting of its own material here, or or, or this is really an army focused rewrite? It sounds like. This is an army focused rewrite. NIST is not. I, I don't. NIST has not really changed the way they've written throughout the years. Is that because some of the interpretations are are based on are army specific in some way, and in, in the way that army uses IT or army culture? Or help help me understand why there needs to be an an, yeah. know, an army spin uh, on NIST language. Right. So, I mean, I don't want to say that it's an army spin. Sometimes it's just putting it in plain language. But there's other ones where there's specific instances in the Army, for example, on tactical systems, um, where where a, a, a NIST control may ask something and it doesn't really fit into that architecture that you're looking at at the time. So maybe an example would be it's asking for something about the physical environment, where your system is a radio. Well, you can't really answer that at that particular time. And so is there a way we can write that where the person that's answering that question, we either understand what the control is asking for or write it in a way where the person can address it? And then back on phase two, on, on the whole prioritization effort, which sounds like a huge effort, frankly, I don't know how many specific examples you can give, if any, but but just, just so people understand how the Army's thinking about that prioritization process, can you can you help walk me through how you might think about you know, this control doesn't apply or it's less important and this one is must do? So some examples, I mean, for a network that's not connected, such as a closed restricted network, that would, you know, that's some place where we could assume a little bit more risk. Or controls that involve strictly documentation, not to say documentation isn't important, that mean maybe not all documentation is as important as, as, as maybe a technical control. And so it's, it's, it's not a trade-off, it's more of asking, does this apply, and what do I get for this? You know, what, how does this affect my cybersecurity posture? And what risk am I occurring by not doing this control? And so we, you know, we're going through these and asking these questions, and it's it's a discussion amongst many subject matter experts uh, on how we're going. How much is that? You know, a conversation between the the technical slash CISO community. And the mission owners, because I'm imagining there's going to be a lot of circumstances where the mission owner is willing to accept mission risk because he doesn't think this this particular vulnerability presents much mis- mission risk. But the IT or the CISO community is not willing to accept the risk that particular vulnerability presents to the network. Yeah, that's where the idea of the threshold comes in. 
Um, and so you, ma you make a great point. So the, you know, the authorizing official of the system versus the authorizing official of the environment or the COCOM commander, et cetera, those are all different levels of accepting and identifying risk. And so what we want to look to is we want to look to the validated threat. What we're seeing in, what we're seeing in, in the cybersecurity world as what's our most imminent threats. Those things go above the, the threshold, and you can't just assume that risk. There has to be some conversation to be had either, you know, between whatever parties we're talking about at the time, whether it be our cyber, whether it be a COCOM commander. Um, that's what that threshold is going to do. And so this is how we're going to focus on our highest risk areas. A lot of communities, as you say, involved in, in developing these thresholds and, and doing that prioritization. Who's the ultimate arbiter if there's disagreement among that, that wide landscape? That is to be determined. It would probably be the network owner, um, our cyber, maybe U.S. Cybercom. I mean, we, we, we're not at that point yet. Mm -hmm. um, this is in, in, you know, we're in phase one. And so all this stuff has to be worked at, wor you know, worked, worked on. Okay, so let's talk about phase one a little bit more then. I mean, you mentioned inheritance being a big factor in, in phase one, and you mainly talked earlier about inheriting decisions that have already been made across the Army. Do you also, I mean, does this also give the ability to inherit approvals that have already done by another service or another DOD component? Yeah, that's, so that's reciprocity, and we already institute reciprocity across DOD and across the services. Um, that's been working actually quite well for us. The other thing that we, in, so they're, they're in the Army also inherits um, DOD policy records as well. So inheritance has been a great tool within RMF. Uh, we will probably get, uh, get after our cloud uh, RMF structure through inheritance, through the CSSP and the cloud service providers. So RMF has, has inheritance built in, um, and I think we're using it uh, to our full advantage. Yeah, as you move to more cloud infrastructure type environments, how much how much does that simplify all of this? Because it seems to me if, if the entire army is leveraging more of a cohesive, unified IT infrastructure, that's a lot more stuff you get to inherit and not have to redo, right? That, that's absolutely correct. We will be able to inherit our, our CSSP provider will provide us uh, a record, an RMF record of inheritance, and as will the cloud service providers for each of the service, you know, as a service, whichever as a service you are, you are buying. So we're we're working those efforts uh, right now. Um, we're we're aligned with with DoD on that as well, um, and it should make it easier uh, because it's it you know it you're, you're you're kind of dividing and conquering at that point. So what what are, what are the timelines of these phases look like? You said you're in phase one right now, but but how how long before you move on and how long until you get to phase three? Yeah, we're we're meeting uh, for the second the second meeting is at the end of January. We're meeting out of Fort Huachuca. Um, we will hope to have in the April timeframe an initial set of controls that are drastically reduced in numbers. Um, again, it, it it's not about just reducing the controls. That we really look at identifying the right controls based you know based on what we need. One of the things that, that I, I want to ensure is that when we reduce this control set, it is the right controls and we can hold people accountable. And this goes back to you know, the prioritization. And so the second step, um, I believe we should be able to um, prioritize. I'd like to 
come up with um, a process where, you know, we're validating the threat all the time. The threat changes every day. And so we can always reprioritize controls um, and put our focus where we need to. And that's going to be the beauty of this is that the NIST control set doesn't change all that much. I mean, they come up with updates, but they're not changing daily. But the prioritization can change all the time. It will allow also for us to see where we stand with a validated threat as well across our portfolio. Yeah, considering that you're going to be evaluating this on a continuous basis, d does that mean that an authorization doesn't necessarily have a specific expiration date? How, how, how does that how does that play out? No, it would it wouldn't it wouldn't change in the, with the expiration dates. It wouldn't change that. Um, you know, U.S. Cybercom releases IAVAs, and that that is our that is a threat management system, mm -hmm. um, as 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 we all know. So we do see those coming out. What it, what it allows us to do is especially when they are systemic findings over time, not just new validated threat, but um, you know, maybe that something was below the threshold and now all of a sudden we see, we see some activity picking up and now we put it above the threshold. Now we can look across the portfolio at those, that specific control and see where are we? You know, where are we with our, with our cybersecurity posture? And I think that's what it's going to allow us to do. Again, right now, with nothing prioritized, everything looks equal. Nancy Kreidler is the Director of Cybersecurity and Information Assurance in the Army CIO's office. She's back with us for a few more minutes as we wrap up our conversation on RMF and Project Sentinel. That's coming up after another short break on Federal News Network. This is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbin. Thanks for listening to Federal News Network. This is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. A few more minutes with Nancy Kreidler, the Director of Cybersecurity and Information Assurance in the Army CIO's office. We're talking about Project Sentinel. That's the Army's effort to reform how it authorizes systems under the government's risk management framework. And, and Ms. Kreidler, before the break, you were telling us you're trying to reduce the number of RMF controls that you're really looking at for each system, but, but also to get to the right controls. And, and so the answer to this next question, I'm sure, depends on what you end up landing on as the right controls. But do you have a notional number in your head that you'd like to get down to that the Army is prioritizing? Yeah, I do. I mean, I want, I want to get to about between two and 300. Now, remember, we're at, we started at about 1,900. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe we're down to around 1,400. And so I'd like to get down to, it. it's got to be a manageable set, especially if you're going to hold people accountable. But again, it's going to be whatever the right controls add up to. You know, I know what I would like to see, but I don't know what the working group's going to come out with. So it's kind of hard to say that. But I actually have some statistics I'd like to share with you from our streamlining efforts Please. Uh, that we just uh, did some metrics on. So what we looked at is, for example, our uh, authority to test um, RMF for uh, supporting the cross-functional teams. We were able to reduce the procedures, and we were able to save 230 hours per system of work. So we got it down to 478 procedures. Uh, two, 230 hours, so that's pretty significant. For our PM-managed systems, we were able to get down to, we were able to save 239 hours per system. And the way we came up with that metric is, you know, it's kind of hard to say how you had to measure a part of a process. But we took a control and we said about six people have to validate that control. Somebody has to read it, somebody has to write the response, and then there's review people after that. And so we averaged a 15 minutes of control. 
And based on that, that's where we got those metrics from. Another metric I'd like to share is the common controls that we've done so far, uh, where I said there was a lot of policy, that Army had written policy, so we can give credit for that and then inherit those answers. And we saved, there was 167 assessment procedures that we identified, which is about 40 hours per system. The Army has well over 1,000 systems, but if you take 1,000 systems, that's 40,000 hours of work. So I wanted, that really kind of drives home how much work this RMF is, how much, how much effort and resources and time, how much it, it really takes. It's hard for me, in my head anyway, to translate hours into uh, you know meaningful real-world results. So 239 hours on a PM-managed system. Let's you know, how many months sooner did that system get fielded because of those 239 hours saved? We don't have. I don't have that statistic because the rest of the controls that are left are technical controls, and that um, that 15 minutes per control can vary so much. Because it says something, you know, the technical assessments they take longer, and so it's really hard to average how much a control take. The ones that we did that that were the common controls were the ones that were documentation controls. So we said, you know, averaging 15 minutes is fine, but some of the assess the technical assessment procedures take quite long, and then you don't know what conversation. So you can say the PM takes X amount of time. Maybe you could average to get through their assessment, but now you have to go through a third party assessor. Mm. And then you have to, you know, a validator. And then you have to go through a reviewer. And all of that are conversations that happen between those parties. And that just adds time. So you really, you can't really average a time it takes because of those things. Every system is pretty unique that way. And it really depends on the validator and the reviewer. So can we even say that this is getting systems fielded sooner? I, I want to be clear on that point, at least. You can, yes, yes, it is. I, I, what I can't tell you is how long it takes to do a system. It, mm -hmm. it depends. It depends on how experienced the person is. It depends on how, what kind of shape the system, what kind of system it is. Um, you know, a, a network is different than a radio, which is different than a laptop. Sure. And so, you know, everything is so unique, it's really hard to say. But I can tell you probably if you ask anybody, they'll tell you it takes too long. Does automation have much of a role here in terms of, of you know, taking human labor out of the loop when you, when you evaluate systems and move them toward authorization? The Army, I mean, we continue to look at, at, at automation and ways we can support continuous monitoring. Um, I mean, we're starting to look at new processes such as DevSecOps. But right now, we really start, we, we really want to focus on reforming the actual risk management process and the assessment procedures before we really look at the tools to do that. I'm, again, want to, you know, vary, get this control set down and, 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 and prioritized in language that's easy to read, and then we can look at different tools. Let's talk a bit about the backlog. I know there had been a backlog at some point and that now there is not. Uh, can you talk a bit about where you were, where you are now, and, and how you got to, to zero? So the backlog was before my time, I have to say. As a okay. customer, I was, I was in the backlog. Um, but there is no backlog now. And so the, the, the process seems to be going, I mean, again, since 2015, we're into 2020. We are really experienced in this process. And so I'd rather answer this question with, with the team that is working on this Project Sentinel. Um, these are not contractors that we hired. We did not contract this work out. These are all people that are subject matter experts throughout the Army. We have 15 different people working from several different organizations across the Army. I mean, truly a grassroots effort in, in that space. These people are doing this work on top of their full-time job. 
Um, and, and, and they're some of the smartest people I know in the Army when it comes to, to risk management framework. And, and because of that, this process, there is no way this process isn't going to improve. They, they, have, they have a vested interest in making this better. And we have tactical and enterprise um, representatives in that group. Yeah, as you say, most of this is an internal army effort. But but is there going to be any meaningful impact on vendors? Or, I mean, are they going to start to see, are they going to start to see things in RFIs and RFPs that were, were the army's asking them to do things a little bit differently to to accommodate the processes that you're developing? I don't believe so. the The NIST controls have 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 been the NIST controls, and everybody is uh, to build towards those. I I guess for industry, I I would say two things. I would say if you from a support aspect, I would say that supporting the Army with RMF support, ensure your people understand risk management, not just how to implement the EMAS tool. You know, knowing EMAS is not necessarily knowing risk management. Uh, the second thing I would say is that this is going to really look at systems and applications and networks where security is built in, because if it's not built in, it's going to show in this process. And so where maybe in the past things were, things were able to be documented in a plans of actions and milestones, that, that if you come with a system or a product that is above the threshold, we're going to have a little bit more difficulty getting it on the network. Nancy Kreidler is the Director of Cybersecurity and Information Assurance in the Army CIO's office. She joined us by phone from her office at the Pentagon to talk about Project Sentinel. That's the name the Army's using for its RMF reform process. We'll stick with Army IT to finish out the hour. An update on cloud computing and other topics from Lieutenant General Bruce Crawford, the Army CIO G6, when we come back on Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbid. Back on Federal News Network, this is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. And as we said before the break, we're going to finish up the hour with dates on the Army's broader IT landscape, beyond the security discussion we've been having for most of the show. Lieutenant General Bruce Crawford is the Army's Chief Information Officer. He gave an update on cloud computing, the Army's data strategy, and several other issues at the AFSIA Northern Virginia Chapter's annual Army IT Day. This is a short excerpt from his remarks. When it comes to enterprise network modernization, think uh, two big things from an enterprise, all right, because we talked about what Pete and Dave did. All right, uh, think enterprise IT as a service, and there were literally within six to seven months from good idea to an actual contract uh, being let. And so we've got the first three locations, with location number one being Headquarters Futures Command. Uh, then uh, we've actually got uh, Fort Polk, Louisiana, which is one of our combat training centers. Uh, and then we've got Camp Roberts, California. And so those pilots are ongoing now. We have another three pilots uh, in, in uh, 20 uh, that, are, that are teed up. And this is going to fundamentally change the future of how we modernize uh, the enterprise. Okay. Well, thank you very so hopefully much. Hopefully that was helpful. And if, you have, if, if there are any follow-ons, please send us those questions if you, have any, if you want to go do a little deeper dive. Let me go into uh, another area that which I, I think a lot of people in this room are very familiar with, it's called JEDI, okay, which, was, uh, which has been, it's been awarded, but I'm sure there's protests going on the whole nine yards. However, uh, we understand that the Army stood up. I thought during our rehearsal you said we weren't going to ask. I'm not going to bring up those things yet. <laughs> yeah. No, we're not going to talk about that. Yeah, yeah hush. Uh, thank you. Uh, they stood up. So, so, so about JEDI. 
Jedi. You want to talk about? Yeah, talk let, about Jedi. So let's talk about cloud. Uh, and so uh, you know, the Jedi effort, uh, when Mr. Danny DC uh, came on board, uh, this was uh, an effort to deliver an enterprise cloud hosting capability uh, at the uh, unclass, for the very first time, by the way, at the unclass, at the secret, and at the TS level. Now, I'm not saying that those capabilities don't exist kind of hither and yon, but for the very first time, uh, this was an effort to deliver uh, that capability uh, across uh, all of the services for the Department of Defense. And so uh, the Army, uh, you know, I've been asked this question many times. Uh, are you, uh, are, is, is there interest from the Army in this capability? Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. From the tactical edge of the enterprise, at all uh, security cla uh, classification levels, there is a need for an enterprise uh, actual capability. Uh, and uh, what the services are doing now is they're going through looking for early adopter opportunities because the first delivery, I believe, is on 11 February, uh, when uh, at an unclassified level, the unclassified capability will be available. And so if you ask within the Army, uh, what's our level of interest? I can think off the top of my head uh, that there are several, uh, but uh, when you think about the IVAS capability, uh, this idea that there's going to be goggles, that a young soldier is going to be able to wake up, uh, get in some good PT, get a great breakfast, and they're going to be able to put on a set of uh, goggles that are a little bit bigger uh, than a set of Oakleys. And they're going to be able to leverage that interactive and virtual uh, reality type capability and train on any piece of turf there is in the world. Okay. I say again, they're going to be able to train using uh, some of the synthetic training environment capability with one world terrain, kind of a Google Earth-like capability. And they're going to be able to train on any piece of turf uh, with the soldiers that they lead uh, anywhere in the world. Uh, that's a game-changing type capability. But for the folks in the room who do this for a living, that's a lot of data. Uh, and it's got to go somewhere. And it's got to be stored somewhere. And so do we store it in a legacy data center? Do we upgrade data centers? Or do we go ahead and move a lot of that data to the cloud, whether it's an unclass or a classified? Right. All right? And so looking at STI uh, and IVAS uh, as our initial uh, offerings uh, when it comes to uh, the JEDI e effort. So more to follow on the JEDI effort. One of the lessons learned for me in this job with a past cloud effort was we needed to centralize, I'll call it oversight but not control, all right, of all things cloud uh, across the enterprise. You know, uh, I won't tell you how many cloud contracts we uncovered, but I will tell you it's, uh, it's uh, a multi I'll, call, I'll use multiple right now. Multiple existing cloud contracts across the Army. Uh, and so I want the, when you think enterprise cloud management office, Think of it as a resource for the Army, all right? Whether it's the managed services before you move to the cloud or existing enterprise common shared services like identity and access management and, and, uh, and cybersecurity after you move to the cloud or one central entity that's going to help the Army procure uh, the, you know, uh, the compute and store capabilities going to be required in the cloud. So that's kind of the role, and we uh, actually took your advice. We went out to industry and brought in a, an executive from Pivotal uh, named Mr. Paul Puckett. So today was actually his ceremony to become a Tier 2 SES. So that's where I came from. So we're, we're actually taking action, uh, tangible action, against what I call the broader data.
Lieutenant General Bruce Crawford, the Army's chief information officer, speaking at AFCIA Northern Virginia's annual IT day. He answered a few follow-up questions from reporters after those remarks, including on the new cloud computing office you heard him mention just a few moments ago. We've actually gone out and hired uh, from industry Mr. Paul Puckett, uh, and uh, he came from a company called Pivotal. Uh, and he was an executive in that company. And so he's now come on to be the director of uh, the Enterprise Cloud Management Office. As a matter of fact, again, one of the reasons I'm in this uniform is today was his ceremony to make him a tier two uh, SES. So he'll be at the two star level, uh, standing that up. And what are his key priorities? Well, right he's now? Pre- uh, for, first of all, uh, the talent for the team. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, he, he's getting a lot of people raising their hands that are credentialed. Uh, PhD types or others who have got just the skill sets that he's looking for uh, in this particular space to come onto the team. As an example, we have a young colonel, uh, and this is both in and outside the military, we got a young colonel who's got a PhD in cybersecurity. Uh, she's going to be his lead for cybersecurity. So his FOC date is in March, meaning he's, uh, I, I charged him when he took over in November, uh, initial operating capability at standup once they became an entity, uh, and then full operational capability by the end of March is what we're looking for. And how many are you looking to bring on? Well, it, it'll be less about numbers and more about capability. Okay. So remember, the, the reason we needed to create a centralized capability for the Army is we got a lot of users who want to migrate to the cloud. And so when I said uh, his role is about being a resource for the Army. So if you want to move, first thing you got to know is what's available to move you. Correct? An example of managed services. Uh, and so he knows what enterprise contracts we already have in place so that the user doesn't have to pay for it twice, right? Uh, where are you going to move to? A cloud hosting environment. He knows what enterprise uh, contracts. As an example, we have partnered with the Air Force on the Cloud One contract. Um, and so he knows what's available to move them in. And then once you move into the place, uh, the equivalent of having your utilities turned on, which are called uh, common shared services like cybersecurity and identity and access management. Well, he knows we put some enterprise contracts in place already uh, to make sure that the user doesn't pay for it twice. And so those are some examples of where it's to synchronize and integrate all things cloud within the Army. Uh, but it's also, uh, his role is to be a resource for the Army. So it's less about numbers of people and more about the skill sets that they bring. On the EITI and the Enterprise IT as a service, uh, I know you guys have talked about the three pilots. You mentioned there's three more coming. Yes. Is there, are you able to talk anything more about where or at least what types of bases or how is it going to be different? There'll, there'll be a, so, so there's a large, a medium, and a small base. Uh, and uh, the uh, in the contract award, uh, it's the same three, it's uh, Microsoft, Verizon, and AT&T. Uh, and, and, and categorically, you'll see the same types of installations. If you'll, if you'll take a look at it, we chose a combat training center for a reason. We chose Futures Command Headquarters you know, for a reason, because these are priorities for the Army. Related to that, um, the Army data strategy, or data plan is out, the executive order was signed. Can you talk a little bit about that as well? Oh, absolutely. So uh, you, last time I talked to you all, I talked about the fact that we were working on a data strategy. Um, and we, they're, they're, this was a significant change with respect to um, the approach that we were taking to data. Uh, it was all about informing this big idea that the Army was now treating data as a strategic asset. So in November, 
we released the data strategy via an order to the Army uh, that essentially gave them some specific tasks. We, the data strategy was the actual reference, but remember the purpose of the data strategy is all about making sure data is visible. Uh, and you've heard me talk about this accessible, usable, trusted, interoperable, and protected and, and secure. And so you have to you know, come up with standards in order to make that happen. Just saying do it, that doesn't make it so. And so with the data strategy as the foundation, there was an ex execution order uh, issued to the entire Army. Uh, and those confirmation back briefs from the leadership out in the field, uh, starting at the most senior leadership all the way down, uh, have occurred. Uh, the initial, I understand what you told me to do, uh, and I am now developing my plan for how to meet that. And so that, that's the, the connection between the data strategy, which is all about standards, uh, and the actual order that went out to the Army to, to begin executing. And then one cl quick clarification. You mentioned JEDI and February 11th was the initial capabilities stand-up. I just want to clarify. Yeah. Did I hear that correctly? Yes, yes. So uh, one of the uh, mandates in associated with the JEDI effort was that uh, within X number of days, they'd have an unclassified capability available. And uh, all indications are that that unclassified capability is on track to be delivered uh, in the month of February. And you guys are going to use it? And we intend to, we're, we're working through now, as you heard me talk about, early adopters. So if you remember, the Jedi kickoff already occurred. And uh, you may, I think, I think you, you may, have, may have been there for that. Uh, but a big part of that is uh, who, who are the early adopters? Uh, how are you going to leverage this capability right now at the unclassified level? And then what are you now thinking about in terms of when the classified capability becomes available, uh, how you're going to leverage? Uh, the, the, again, this is an enterprise capability. The one other question I was going to bring up, I know you didn't mention it here, is there's been some rumor about the split between CIO and G6. Is that in the works? Is that uh, under consideration, or has it just been bad rumor? Well, no. Uh, what, what's happening across the Army is you look, uh, you know, look left and, and look right, and you look at every organization. As a part of reform, every aspect uh, of the Army, uh, staff in particular, is being examined, and you're asking a couple of fundamental questions. Uh, as we look at the future, are we optimized uh, to support that future? Uh, and uh, you know, do we have uh, the right people in the right places with the right roles and responsibilities? I think you saw some additional uh, pieces of that uh, broader discussion come out as a part of the NDAA when uh, you looked at uh, the directives associated with the chief data officer, uh, the directives that were associated with the business mission area. And so uh, the discussion about how we're organized is more about a focus on the future and asking, back to what I said up there, we're asking hard questions of ourselves inside the Army, and I think that's an attribute of what good organizations actually do. Again, Lieutenant General Bruce Crawford, the Army's Chief Information Officer, talking with two reporters, Lauren Williams from Federal Computer Week and Federal News Network's Jason Miller at the annual Army IT Day, hosted by AFCEA's Northern Virginia chapter. Earlier in the hour, we talked with Nancy Kreidler, the Director of Cybersecurity and Information Assurance in the Army CIO's office, about Project Sentinel, the Army's effort to reform the risk management framework. If you missed that conversation, you'll find this week's full show on our website, federalnewsnetwork.com slash on DOD, or in our podcast feed. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. 
That's going to do it for this week's edition of On DoD. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. I'm Jared Serbia. So long. You've been listening to On DoD on Federal News Network. Tune in Wednesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the Sleep Number Bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my Sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.